latest episode of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast, where we interview academics and entrepreneurs at the front lines of digital health. My name is Dr. Hamid Gumbari, and I am the deputy editor of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. If you like this episode and would like to support our work, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review and visit our website, the Cardiovascular Digital Health Journal. Welcome to the latest edition of the Cardiovascular Digital Health Podcast. My name is Dr. Jaime Gambari, and today we have uh, Melanie Truhills, who's here to talk about her very interesting paper uh, titled, Digital Tools Give AFib Patients More Control. Uh, welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much, Dr. Gambari. <laughs> Well, um, I was very excited to read your paper. Uh, and for our audience who don't really know what it is that you do and what is stopafib.org, can you give us a little brief background of who you are and what is it that stopafib.org is really focused on? So thank you for the privilege of sharing about stopafib.org. I'm an atrial fibrillation patient, although I consider myself a survivor instead, because I've been AFib-free for more than 16 years now. Once I was AFib-free from having a procedure, I decided that somebody needed to do something, and well, it might as well be me. So I started StopAFib.org in 2007 to help those who are living with AFib to get their lives back and to help with communication between patients and their healthcare professionals. We also have a mission for ridding the world of AFib-related strokes by raising awareness of AFib and getting people diagnosed and treated before they have a stroke. So um, as part of what we do, we have patient conferences, we have education, we have a video library. And so we're really about educating patients about AFib and how to live um, how to how to live well with AFib, how to manage it, and even better, how to get rid of their AFib. So digital tools are something that are really important for patients in managing their AFib. And so for me, it was a, a real privilege to be uh, part of the editorial board of the journal and to be able to bring to the readers of the journal, the perspectives of patients uh, when it comes to digital tools. This is an area I've been involved in technology for decades. And so for me, digital tools are really kind of second nature. And understanding where patients were um, in use of digital tools was really important. And that's why I wrote this article, and it's based on a survey that we did of, of actual AFib patients. That's terrific. Um, you know, when we started um, really thinking about putting this journal together, one of the main areas that we were focused on was trying to get patient engagement. And we've been privileged to have you on board and kind of guiding us through what are the things that clinicians need to think about when engaging patients, uh, particularly as it is as it's um, involved with uh, using digital tools. Now, I want to kind of get a scope of how many patients are actually involved in the stopafib.org and uh, what is your reach and what kind of patients are actually um, use the, the tools that you provide to kind of connect with each other. 
Um, thank you for asking that. We are the largest uh, AFib patient organization as far as, um, we, we're not really a membership organization, but as far as people that are involved. We have typically um, a million plus um, unique visitors to our site each year and um, well over two million um, you know, page views. And we also have our video library, which has well over 100 hours of video content from our patient conferences, uh, recordings all the way back to the first patient conference in 2013, as well as webinars, um, our AFib masterclass with Dr. Prostowski, um, et cetera. So we have um, on our newsletter list about um, more than 25,000 uh, patients around the globe who um, subscribe to our newsletter. We have about twenty-five to 30,000 that follow us via our blog, as well as um, upwards of 25,000 on our um, Facebook social media uh, site, and many more through Twitter and other social media tools, such as our discussion forum. So we're very highly followed by the patient community um, around the globe. We have visitors from you know roughly 200 countries a year uh, visiting our our site. So um, stopafib.org is. Um, well recognized among the patient community as a um, very credible, very important resource for them in helping them understand their condition. And we're also privileged that uh, doctors recognize the work that we're doing because it helps make their lives easier as well, because better educated patients uh, help doctors um, do a better job in shared decision-making and working with their patients uh, in educating them about their condition. So we're very privileged to have a large audience that um, are, are getting educated about AFib. Yeah, you've really built a remarkable organization. And I know many times my patients come in with uh, information that, that that they've gotten from your site and it always makes me really feel good because I know that the information on that site is reliable. Um, so thank you, I think, on behalf of the clinicians and a lot of my patients for putting it together. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I, you, you know, your paper is really focused on this really interesting survey of how patients use digital technologies um, when they have atrial fibrillation. Um, could you give us a little background of how you actually conducted the survey and particularly what kind of patients actually completed the survey? Right. So we, um, we did the survey uh, from March 30th to April 5th of, of 2021. So it was not open for a long period of time, but we had, um, it was a very long survey and and so, you know, we could have had people bail out along the way because it was so long, but we wanted really in-depth information. Normally, we do shorter surveys. This one, I wanted to really gauge what was going on. And so we had 763 AFib patients complete it. And um, we 
uh, put the word out through our email newsletter, through our Facebook page, through our Twitter feed, through our discussion forum, as well as the atrial fibrillation uh, support forum on Facebook. And so we were able to reach those who were interested in responding about digital health, as well as some other subjects. We were asking them not just about digital health, but also about um, their experiences with um, COVID, um, getting treatment during COVID, um, telemedicine, and, um, you know, what were some of the things that they they wanted us to cover that they didn't feel like we had covered sufficiently. So it was a rather extensive survey, but because digital health was one of the topics in there, we probably attracted a higher percentage of those who uh, love digital health to the survey. Um, as a result, we showed that about 71% of respondents are actually using consumer digital devices. That may be higher than the general population of AFib patients because we tend to do a lot of focus on digital health. We've had, um, we had had at that time uh, two webinars uh, with um, Dr. Tarakia and Dr. Tarakji on digital health specifically. And so people are very cognizant of that uh, topic and are very interested in digital health. We also do um, sessions on digital health at our annual patient conference. So we probably have a little more educated audience as far as digital health tools, but 71% of the respondents to the survey saying that they're using consumer digital devices was was. Um, staggering even to me. So, I, you know, I think it says that patients are finding these tools to be valuable and to be useful uh, for them, and therefore they're engaging more with them. Um, I, I found it interesting that uh, close to half mentioned the cardiomobile device as, as something they use. Um, another almost half, about 45%, mentioned the Apple Watch or another kind of watch. Um, about 20% were using photoplethysmography phone apps, and about 18% were using Fitbit. And then there were other devices mentioned, um, you know, throughout the survey. And what I think was most interesting is that a very high percentage of them are using multiple devices and apps in their daily life. I think once you get one app or one device, you're much more likely to start accumulating digital health tools to help you manage your health. And so um, finding um, that they were using so many different tools um, was, I think, an important finding of this, that, that there was a high um, rate of multiple devices and apps. Yeah, I was really impressed with the 71% number as well. Although I, I don't know if in my clinical practice, that's not the number I'm seeing, but sure. we're rapidly getting closer to that number with yeah. every um, passing week and every new approved device. Right. Um, did you get a sense um, of how you know, this label of FDA clearance, was that a determining factor for how patients selected the devices or they were really just wanted a device that that would just monitor their heart rhythm or heart rate? 
So we talk a lot about FDA clearance. So that's something that many patients are aware of. And so when they're talking about the devices they're using, they tend to uh, gravitate toward the FDA cleared devices as far as the early adopters go. And the early adopters tend to influence the um, you know mainstream and the late adopters as well. So their experiences with the FDA clear devices are really going to influence the rest of the community. Now, there are a few non-cleared devices that people mentioned and are using, um, but that's typically because they're so much less expensive. And you have an audience that's on a fixed income typically. And because of that, price is really important. So many of them will opt for uh, a non-FDA cleared device if it's a lot less expensive. But we're surprisingly, I'm not seeing as much of that as I would have expected to see. Um, it's really just kind of a, a fringe as opposed to a, a trend. And I think the awareness of the FDA cleared devices means that we're, we're probably going to leave the non-FDA cleared devices in, in their wake um, as patients understand how important it is to have devices that are known to be accurate. And that's a message that I think doctors can give to their patients um, as part of the discussion about, you know, what patients want to um, want to provide their doctors from their tools that they're using, um, a discussion about uh, mentioning that it's um, more accurate typically um, with an FDA clear device than a non-clear device, and that that's something that patients may want to be aware of. Yeah, what you're describing is is kind of what we are seeing in clinical practice that um, patients come to us much more informed than before. They they know, you know, things that previously maybe have not been available to them, like what devices FDA clear. They have a good understanding of what that means, and I think a lot of that has to do with the education through sites like StopAfib.org and other sources. That's kind of really helping this. Um, this movement f mm -hmm. f uh, towards usage of uh, more, you know, digital um, health products that empowers patients. Um, were you able to glean any specific insights regarding specific areas of concerns for patients when they're using these devices? Um, absolutely. Um, concerns um, could be several different things. It could be some of the disadvantages. Um, when we ask patients what were the advantages and what were the disadvantages, about half said there were no disadvantages, but others said, you know, it's things like um, sometimes the the data that came back from the device didn't agree with what my doctor said, my, or my doctor looked at it and said, no, that's not AFib. And um, so the accuracy is a is a concern for patients. And um, in some cases, for patients who are not really tech savvy, another concern is that some of these devices can be difficult. Cost is another concern. Um, some of them are, are expensive. So that leaves out uh, those who are on fixed incomes as well as those in certain socioeconomic um, strata, as well as um, 
things like uh, just the not only the cost of the device and the cost of the monitoring, but also that there's no insurance coverage for any of this. Hopefully at some point that may change, but these devices are being used for telemedicine visits and for other uses. And therefore the patient is supporting the cost of this. So this is another healthcare cost for them. Um, another um, thing that was a concern is, and really this is not so much a, a concern as it it was that they felt it was a shortcoming of the current digital tools. And that was that they couldn't really get constant monitoring and they wanted, you know, real-time data, real-time alerts as to whether they had flipped over into AFEB. So those were some of the concerns that were expressed. But one of the things that I think is interesting is that 70, or excuse me, 27% of those who reported using these digital tools uh, for monitoring their heart rate or their heart rhythm are actually in um, persistent or longstanding persistent, or in some cases they called it permanent. Um, and, you know, because, you know, basically permanent is supposed to be defined as the doctor and the patient have decided not to do anything further. So you kind of wonder why there's monitoring going on if there's been a decision not to do anything further. There may be uses, and and that's what I think we as patients want to really understand. Is there any value to those who are in AFib all the time being monitored by these devices? So that was, that was a concern that was expressed by patients is, is there value for them if they're in AFib all the time? And then one last concern was that Many of them felt like their doctors were not interested in looking at any of their monitoring results. And that's something that um, has been a controversial area ever since the, you know, the beginning of these digital tools is how much should doctors be expected to look at and how much um, should patients um, expect from their doctors regarding monitoring and what's the happy medium there? So I think that's a concern that um, we in the patient community and the EP community will have to really wrestle with to figure out what's appropriate and what's not. Um, I think that's a problem that, you know, as clinicians, we're also struggling with as well as, you know, I have two sets of patients, it seems like there's a group of patients who... Um, send me information every day, all the time. And there's another group that never send me anything. Um, and, you know, they, they have different concerns, those, those groups of patients. Um, what do you think are some important conversations that need to be had between clinicians and patients to make sure that the correct flow of data, um, you know, necessary type of information is being conveyed between the physician and and and, and the patients. Right. So I think it's probably helpful for doctors to at least raise the question, are you using any, you know, consumer devices for monitoring your heart rate or your heart rhythm or, you know, for anything else related to your AFib? Um, I think that's a, an appropriate question that can glean a lot of information for the doctor about 
what the patient is thinking. In some cases, they may already have devices. In other cases, they may be considering getting devices and don't really know how to sort through all the information about what the device to get. Um, you know, doctors can express that FDA-cleared devices are appropriate and important. Um, maybe there are certain devices that make sense for a specific patient. Um, maybe there are other devices that don't make sense for that patient. That's a conversation. I realize it takes time. But in the long run, it probably could save time because probably the most important part of that conversation is um, to discuss what's appropriate and what's not. You know, sending 12 rhythm strips a day is not appropriate. Um, sending a rhythm strip when something is really concerning to you maybe is appropriate. And so having that discussion around what is appropriate and what is not is probably a time saver in the long run uh, because it means not dealing with, um, you know, rhythm strips that are just totally overwhelming you as a doctor and, um, you know, helping patients really understand what's appropriate and what's not. That's, that's terrific advice. You lay out a set of strategies for to be exact on um, kind of having these discussions between uh, physicians and patients. Can you elaborate on those strategies? Right. Absolutely. And, you know, I think really, let me kind of go back um, to start that out with kind of the top line that I think um, clinicians may want to take away from this paper would be, um, really two things. One, digital tools give AFib patients peace of mind and that there are few downsides in, in the patient's mind about these tools. And secondly, that this presents an opportunity for clinicians to improve treatment and adherence, um, to support shared decision-making, and to help um, healthcare professionals understand patient values and preferences. So that's really kind of the context for these four things. And, and these are really about uh, empowering care. So the first is, you know, having a conversation with patients about consumer digital devices, which we just talked about. Um, the second um, strategy is to embrace uh, partnership opportunities between patients and healthcare professionals. And so one patient um, said that, you know, a lot of times patients may hear about these tools before doctors do. And so he actually gave one of these devices, I think it was a cardiomobile device, to his doctor. Um, and the doctor, you know, loved being able to have that and see how to use it in his practice with his patients. And so patients can see things possibly before doctors do, and therefore being open to the possibilities is, I think, an important part of this partnership. Um, a third area is that healthcare professionals can discuss with their patients about things like medication reminder apps. I was really surprised that less than 20% of those surveyed were actually using medication reminder apps. Um, there's some great tools. Cardiomobile has a medication reminder tool. Um, Medisafe is what I personally use. And then there's also Mango Health, which is great. 
Um, if healthcare professionals mentioned medication reminder apps to their patients, they're, and, and all it takes is a smartphone typically in order to use those, um, then we might see better adherence. And, you know, my concern around adherence is especially around the DOACs because those can be time sensitive because of their short half-lives. So making sure that patients are consistent and religious about taking their medications could be as easy as telling them about medication reminder apps. And then um, finally, I was also surprised that only about 10% of those who responded to the survey had ever participated in a research study using these digital health tools. And so that's a huge opportunity area for us. A, a lot of the academic centers are doing digital tool studies. Um, there have also been um, studies like the Apple Heart Study, which I was privileged to be on the steering committee for, and the Heartline Study, which I'm also on the steering committee for. And the most mentioned was the Heartline Study, probably because we've mentioned it so much to patients. But this is an opportunity if um, doctors, especially at academic centers, are doing studies using digital health, helping patients understand how they benefit from participating in those and leveraging that opportunity to enroll, I think is really a big thing. We at stopafib.org um, are very involved in as many of the digital health studies as we can be. And so, you know, I invite researchers to reach out to me to see how we can help engage the patient community in those studies. We do this on a very regular basis. Um, we, um, you know, did a, a one for um, Dr. Passman at Northwestern about a potential study. And, you know, within a, a short period of time, we had 1,500 responses to, to just the survey. And, you know, we help recruit for uh, digital health studies as well. So I think that's a huge opportunity. And I would love to see more patients involved um, in these digital health studies because we all benefit from doing that. That's fantastic um, advice there. So, you know, a lot of our listeners are, like you mentioned, they're digital health researchers, clinicians involved with uh, managing patients with arrhythmias. Um, if they're interested in doing a research study, how would they go about doing this? Do, should they reach out to you directly? Um, absolutely. Um, the easiest way is on the stopafib.org homepage, we have a contact us um, you know, link and just click on that, send us a message. And that goes to uh, my assistant who will forward it to me. That's really the easiest way. Um, but uh, also can contact me directly at mhills, M-H-I-L-L-S at stopafib.org. Well, thank you so much um, for that information. And thank you so much for taking the time. I know your time is very valuable. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Is there any um, a place that you want to direct our audience to if they want to learn about um, stopafib.org and what it is that you do? 
So um, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to share that. Um, we have just recently launched our uh, new website, and uh, we're still in the process of updating some of the, some of the content on it. But uh, I welcome people to go take a look around at stopafib.org. Also, we have uh, a library, a, a video library, that contains a wealth of information. And so encouraging patients to um, come to our video library and come to our site is, you know, very valuable. Um, the library is accessible by signing up at um, stopafiblibrary.com. Um, just a, you know, very simple address, stopafiblibrary.com. And that contains, as, as I mentioned earlier, more than 100 hours of recordings from our patient conferences, from our webinars, and our AFib master classes. So a couple of really, um, you know, valuable resources. What I would love is for um, those who are listening to encourage patients to become informed and to be aware that there is actually a standard for credibility. It's called the Han Code Seal, H-O-N, from Health on the Net Foundation. And so when they're out there looking for resources, to look for the Han Code on sites, because that's a way to determine if they're credible sites. Um, the Han Coach seal on our website is down at the, at the bottom of the page. It's a red, white, blue, and black seal that takes you over to understand the eight guiding principles of a credible, trustworthy medical site and how we meet those credentials. And, and so um, if clinicians will help direct their patients to credible websites and also to let them know that that is one way to determine if a site's credible. Um, that would be really great. We'd, we'd love to have um, partnership with the, those who are listening to make sure that patients find credible information. So thank you for the opportunity to share this information with your audience today, Dr. Gambari. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and having the conversation with me. Um, I look forward to um, round two. Hopefully we can have many more conversations similar to this. And thanks again uh, for listening to our podcast. Thank you. <laughs>